the winter of uh, 2008, and Hilton Head Island Community Church was uh, known at that time as Low Country Community Church Hilton Head, and we were kind of in a, uh, in a transition phase, I, I guess, if you will. Um, some of you know the story, some of you don't, that uh, from 2007 when we started uh, to 2011, uh, we as a church were uh, a multi-site. We were part of Low Country Community Church uh, out in Bluffton. And the pastor there is Jeff Cranston. He was my youth pastor growing up. Uh, he recruited myself and Cynthia uh, and our family uh, from New York City. We had spent a few years in New York City. And he asked us to pray about coming to Hilton Head, and we did. It didn't take me long to pray about coming to Hilton Head because I play golf and I like the beach. And I knew that God would say, go, young man, to Hilton Head, go to the beach. But we did pray about it, and um, we uh, answered God's call and came down here, Cynthia and myself. And there were two major surprises in that first year of, of kind of living down here. Well, there were, there were a lot of like surprises in terms of, of living down here, but there were two in terms of, of the church. One was the fact that when Jeff recruited us from New York, uh, you know, he, he told us there was a core group. You guys, some of you have heard this story. And the core group, um, I found out once I moved my whole family here, was me and Cynthia and a guy named Frank Condor. That's not exactly a core group, but oh well. Okay, so that was a surprise. So we had to spend all of the summer of 2007 and even into 2008 recruiting people to help start our church, and so that was fun. But the other surprise was where we would meet. Um, I, I had been a part of starting a church in Atlanta, suburban Atlanta, uh, along with Cynthia. She was really involved in that more than I was uh, in that day because I, I worked for uh, John Maxwell, worked for a parachurch ministry, um, but slowly um, transitioned over to our church as the small group director. And so um, there in Atlanta, uh, we were, you know, kind of discovering where we would meet. And then we moved to New York City, felt like God was calling us to do that. And um, we had to find a place to meet in, in New York City. So we had kind of like tackled this whole, um, you know, idea of finding a place to meet as a new church start, which isn't an easy thing to begin with, but we had tackled it in suburban Atlanta and we had tackled it in, you know, urban Manhattan. And in fact, there we helped start two campuses uh, for our church uh, called the Gallery Church up there in Manhattan. One of those uh, campuses uh, we combined with the other one. It's still, still doing great up there, um, which I'm so, so excited about. Um, but we were a part of that. And so even in New York City, like finding a place to meet um, was just part of what you do as a church planter. And so it was just kind of like, you know, you, you set up the business, you kind of like, you know, you get a logo, you put a marketing plan together, you do all these different things that uh, many of you who are entrepreneurs, you, you do. And, and finding a place to meet is just one of those things. I had no idea how difficult that would be um, when I moved here. I really didn't even, I didn't even like filter in to the decision whatsoever. It definitely, in hindsight, would have been on the con side of the pros and cons um, if you do that sort of thing. And, and so I remember like very, in a, in a very discouraged way, kind of coming to Jeff in uh, the beginning of the summer 2007. I had lived here, we had lived here for four months, three or four months. And um, I went to him and said, man, I just don't know if this is even going to work. I, I, I cannot find a place to meet. 
And, and sure enough, if we, you know, we found like uh, a building that, that might work uh, and it was perfect and we could get a lease and the right zoning and all that, there wasn't enough parking. And then we might find a building that had the right amount of space um, and it had the right parking, but you know, um, the, the zoning wouldn't work. Or we, we might have the combination of two of those things and not the third. And then sometimes we'd have all three line up, but the, the rent was astronomical. And so, you know, it just, it just didn't seem like it was working. And a lot of you were there in those early days when we made a few phone calls and got the Seventh-day Adventist Church to open its doors to us. And so we met our goal by um, having our first Sunday um, as a church on Labor Day weekend of 2007. And there were probably about 65 or 70 people gathered over there, and uh, it was a great time. Like I said, a lot of you were there, and a lot of you were a part of it. It was, it was just a great time. But all during that time of meeting there, we were on the lookout for where, you know, a permanent place because we knew that we couldn't meet long-term um, in that church. And um, much to our surprise, they um, gave us a, about a three-week notice that we couldn't meet there, and uh, we had to quickly kind of scramble, and uh, the first week in January of 2008, uh, we met at Hilton Head Christian Academy in their cafeteria, grew out of the cafeteria, moved into the gym, gymnasium, I almost said gymnatorium, um, which I love that word, I think that's like the coolest word, I don't even know if it's a word, but it's cool, but anyway, we moved into the gym, and uh, we had really big growth there, God did some amazing things, and, um, but all during that time, we knew that that wasn't going to be a permanent solution. So we were praying and looking and praying and looking and asking God and looking and keeping our eyes out. And we had teams of people looking around and I would spend my days literally opening up the island packet and going through and finding any space that was 2,000 square feet or more. And um, one night, Cynthia says to me, hey, there's a place that I'm reading about here that is for lease it's triple net. It's kind of what we're looking for. You know, it looks like the you know the lease may be right. The the numbers may be right, and it's four thousand square feet. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's four hundred. I promise you, it's a typo because I've done this before where it said two thousand square feet, and I showed up and it was two hundred. There's a lot of difference between two thousand square feet and two hundred, right? I mean, it's a lot of difference. There's a lot of space missing, and so um, we were just praying and asking and praying and asking. And Monday morning, I went down to this building um, right down here, about a mile down the road off of Office Park Road, um, 21 Office Park Road. And I went, whoa, this is it, 4,000 square feet. And I called Cynthia. I'm like, you're right again. And I, you know, just like, you know, over and over of 20 years of marriage, 15 at that point in time, I think. But anyway, you're right, honey, you're right. You know, and so I called Jeff. And I remember that winter when Jeff and I met and we stood out in the parking lot there of the Kiowa building. Um, how, how many of you were at the Kiowa building with us? Let me see your hands. That's a lot. A lot of you were there. And um, so Jeff and I met outside there and we kind of like sitting um, on the tailgate of his truck came up with a plan to tell the elders of Low Country Community Church that we found the permanent space, you know, or at least the space for the next three to five years. And he and I were both kind of like, we were excited about it. And we knew this was like God leading us because the zoning was right. And, the, um, you know, everything just was lining up. It had been the library for um, University of South Carolina, Beaufort. And um, now they've, you know, moved it out off the island. And it was the library for, um, uh, I, I think, uh, one of the other uh, local colleges, technical college, low country uh, technical college. And so um, it was just the perfect space. It just worked out right. But we knew that we had like just shy of $100,000 in renovations. 
um, that the landlord wasn't going to give us because he's a smart businessman. And so we had that. And then we had about $40,000 a year in expenses. Now, did I mention that we were a new church? And, um, you know, our income was very, very limited. And so Jeff and I put this plan together and presented it to the elders. I believe it was on a a Monday night, another Monday night. They came down to the building. The landlord kind of let us just have the building for a few hours. And I remember that meeting because the chairman of the elders said, well, you know, you guys have put together a good plan. Um, It looks like God may be leading us this way. But we as a board, as a leadership team, we have a huge decision that we have to make. And so right there in that building, I remember all of us getting on our knees and and we, we began to pray. And we just prayed that God would give us wisdom and that he would give us insight. And so that was the tension decision that was kind of ours as a church back in the winter of 2008. And so much hung in the balance, so much hung in the balance for us and our future as a church because there were so many closed doors. I I was this far away, even at that point in time, from just going, this is just not working. The schools wouldn't let us meet on a continual basis. They let us meet you know, every once in a while. Even Christian Academy, which is a great partner with us, um, has something in their bylaws that says a church can't meet for um, more than a year. So that was a closed door long term. Um, the, the hotels, get this, this is kind of funny, you guys will love this. The hotels were like, yeah, sure, you can come and meet in one of our meeting rooms, in, in one of our you know, uh, conference rooms or whatever, but you have to buy however many people you have on Sunday, every Sunday you have to buy that many rooms. You have to like rent that many rooms. We're like, yeah, no, that's not going to work. <laughs> the, the non-option option. So it was just one of those times that was filled with tension for us as a church. And I believe in that moment with us praying in that building down there at 21 Office Park Road, it was one of those times where um, we were going to either trust God for the future Uh, listen to him and and like hear what he's trying to say to us about what he wants for us. And everything came back to money. It just came back to what are we going to do because this is going to cost us some money. Growing the kingdom of God in this decision is going to cost us some money. Are we going to do it? Today, we're continuing our series on on radical generosity. And I want to take just a moment to review last week, just to give you a framework. If you weren't here, maybe you were here just as a reminder. And and I realize that we're all coming in today into this room from different places. And and I want to address that for a moment. If you're here today and and you're not a God follower, you're not a Christ follower, you're not a Jesus follower, like the whole religion thing is um, kind of something you've rejected. Um, I get it. And and to date, while today's message is for those of us who are Christ followers specifically, uh, I, I don't believe it's without merit for you. Okay, so I just want to ask you to do me the favor today just to like hang in there with us. Hang in there with us and see if something might happen in your life that would um, maybe press you on further um, towards God. Um, Some of you came in today um, strapped with financial pressure. And I cannot tell you how much I understand that because I've been there. I've been there before. And I want you to know that today's message, I'm not going to pull any punches, but I believe that God's Holy Spirit can um, bring 
maybe challenge and conviction at the same time that he can bring comfort into your life. Are you with me? Like that does happen. So that's my prayer for you. And some of you today are here and your financial house is in order, but maybe something that has been, uh, was said today or is going to be said today or maybe something you see on the screens um, will prompt you to just go a little bit further in terms of your faith walk. Because here's what I want to point out today is, is that our faith journey and money go hand in hand. Whether we like to admit it or not, they go hand in hand. And so last week, we learned a couple things. We looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be there again. We're going to be there over the next um, four weeks. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, the verses that um, you, we're, you're going to hear today will be on the screens. And um, you can also follow along on our app. You can do that as well. But we began um, last week with a look at a, a group of Christ followers who modeled generosity in, in a remarkable way. But we also kind of took a step back and said, what does the Bible say about the, the minimum kind of like um, obligation. Like um, when it comes to us and God, we often want to know that, right? Just like a parent, like, hey, how far can I go without crossing the line, right? That's what we want to know. We, we don't want to know, and, and not too many of us have kids that are so safe that they're going to like be so safe that they don't even come close to the line. And we kind of have that same type of tension-filled relationship with God. Like, we want to know what the minimum is. Hey, I do. And so um, we looked last week at two different passages that kind of highlighted the fact, uh, Malachi 3.10 and Matthew 23.23, that both the Old Testament and the New Testament lay a foundation of 10% of your income as a minimum um, contribution to God if you're, if you're a Jesus follower. Okay, and so that's what God says. If that like makes you mad or hurts your feelings, you can take it up with him because it's his rule, not mine. So anyway, so the biblical minimum standard in church is giving 10% of our income. Really can't give around that. And what we talked about last week is that radical generosity, our message series for this whole, these next four weeks, um, is really moving from where you are, where you currently are, to something greater. And I want to stop there for a moment and talk about something I didn't talk about last week. Um, it doesn't matter what phase of life you're in. Um, we kind of described tithers, givers, tippers, and non-givers. Those are the four different groups of people who are in church. It doesn't matter where you are on that scale. I don't know where you are on that scale. You have nothing to confess to me because you'd be telling me some new information. So, like, that's just between you and God and, you know, hopefully your spouse as well if you're married in here. Uh, those four different categories, um, it doesn't matter where you are on that scale. It doesn't matter where you are in life, whether you're, uh, you know, single, whether you're newly married, whether you have, um, you know, two kids and, and, you know, two cars and you're that kind of, you know, quintessential essential American family, or if you're a student in here, if you're college age, or maybe um, heading towards that, or maybe you're in high school, um, these principles over these next four weeks, I promise, I promise, I promise, if you follow God's plan for material wealth and money, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. And so I don't know what radical generosity means to you. I've had some people kind of contact me and go, what is radical generosity? That's the whole point of the series. 
is is that it's going to be different for you than it might be for someone else. But I believe that God is calling all of us at Hilton Head Island Community Church to obedience in this area because this area reveals more about our spiritual life than any other area. So um, God is is, um, going to lead all of us to a place that's greater, and I want to encourage you on that. I want to also encourage you, if you're parents, and I'm going to talk about this in detail next week, this is something that you can really um, have fun with in your home, Um, And you can really practice this in your home. And this is completely ripped off from Dave Ramsey, Financial Peace University. We took this and we ran with it in our home. So I got to give credit to him. Um, uh, Dave Ramsey um, uh, talks about this idea of teaching your kids these same principles that he teaches in Financial Peace University. And that is give, save, and spend. And so we had the kids make boxes with give, save, and spend. And so uh, they put the, the money that they receive for doing the jobs that they're supposed to do around the house of chores and that kind of thing. We still call them chores. That sounds like the you know, 1800s, but that's okay. So we still do that. And so they put it in one of those three categories and they get to save money. They get to spend money, but they also give money and they bring that into the church. And so I want to encourage you to do that more on that next week. Um, if you're here today and there's a barrier, uh, you, you can't give. And we talked about that last week. Um, Find the barriers that you can control and work diligently to remove them. That's what financial peace is all about. And you can go and sign up for more information. You're not signing up for the class, but you're signing up for more information. Now, not only does the Bible give us this minimum 10%, but the Bible gives us the best example of a group of people who gave, and that's the Macedonians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I love this passage of scripture. Absolutely love it. And I want to let you know that this place called Macedonia was located near Rome. It's actually modern-day Greece and Turkey in that area. It was one of, in the first century, one of the the closer uh, locations near to Rome on the way to Jerusalem up through Galatia. And it would have been one of the first places that the Roman government could have found Christians. And these Christians, they were called followers of the way back then. Um, They were a different form of Judaism, really, is what it was. Their their disciples had been followers of Jesus. And after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, everything changed. And you read in Acts chapter 1 and 2 and 3 about the explosive explosive exponential growth of the, the first church. And the Jewish leaders were angry about this. The Romans were angry. And so what that led to is kind of... Um, well, was really wide-scale, worldwide persecution in the known world of Christians in that day and age. And many people, many scholars and theologians believe that Macedonia was one of the first places to experience some kind of uh, persecution. And because of that, they uh, were left with nothing. Now, this was an extremely wealthy area that was full of great land to develop, and it was full of great agriculture and had the perfect environment for livestock, and they were a wealthy group of people. But once the Romans came through, um, experts say they were left with nothing, absolutely nothing. And so we see there that they were crippled by this affliction. Let's read this. We began last week with verses 1, 2, and 3. We're going to read 1, 2, and 3, but we're going to go through 5 today, and then we're going to stop at 5, and we're going to talk about what we can learn from the Macedonian church. Look at this, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. We want you to know, by the way, this is written by Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament. He's writing to a wealthy church in Corinth. 
that had a lot of things going on that was wrong. And this was one of them, this whole idea of giving. He, he says this, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, we just talked about what that affliction was, a persecution, their abundance of, I want you to say that with me, joy, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity, in a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 3, take a look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Now, here's where I want you to really get this. Verse 4 says this, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God. They gave to us. This was a church that had gone through extreme affliction. And so we see in the first three verses that the Macedonians um, did not allow their current circumstances to limit their ability to give. But what we see in verses four and five is this idea that um, the Macedonian church allowed their strong love for Jesus to be the reason that they had a strong desire to give. Their strong love for Jesus was the thing that gave them a strong desire to give. Now, when they say that they were passionate about and they were uh, begging earnestly for the opportunity to give to the, the saints that were in, in harm's way, they were talking about the missionaries and the, the, the people in Jerusalem who were Christians who were going out and being persecuted. And so this church that went through persecution that was left with nothing was begging not for something for them, but they were begging earnestly for the opportunity to what? To give. They were begging Paul, this church leader, for the opportunity to give back. Listen, this was the church that in this day and age, um, if this affliction happened in 2015, um, that we would say, let's raise some money in our church and let's go help them. And they are the ones that want to help the church in Jerusalem. That, that word, going back to that word, earnestly, it has two meanings. It has a double meaning. Meaning, The first meaning is that they all were begging, okay? All of them. It has this meaning. It was like all-inclusive. It wasn't just a group of them that were begging. <laughs> like there's a group of people going, hey, we need to beg Paul uh, for the opportunity to give. And then there's another group of people going, no, we need to beg Paul for money because we need it. Like we are the ones that have been persecuted. It wasn't like that at all. It meant that they all were unified around this idea of earnestly asking for money and so, uh, or earnestly asking to give away money. And so verse, uh, the second meaning is that it was an encouraging appeal. So when we think of begging, we think of someone who is in need asking for something, but this was a group of people that were all together, all begging, all asking with great passion, with persuasiveness to give, with an encouraging 
appeal. And so you can see that these people were so strong in their love for Christ. And that was an overflow into their area of giving. And here's a principle that you can absolutely take home with you is this. And this is for all of you who are Christians, all of you who are Christ followers. A strong love for Jesus will equal a strong desire to give. A strong love for Jesus will end up equaling a strong desire to give. And so at the center of radical generosity is this whole idea of desire, and that's the issue that we're tackling today. Last week it was ability, you know, debt, like overcommitment financially, like the boat and the car and the other car and the other car and the other car and the boat and the other three boats in the house, like overcommitment and the, oh, five credit cards, I've been there on that one, not with the boats, but the five credit cards, okay, like an overcommitment. We've talked about the fact that we have to find what we can control in our finances to be able to give. Today, we're almost taking a step back and looking at that desire because these people in Macedonia had this desire. And so the word desire literally means this, to wish or to long for, to express a wish and to obtain it, to ask for it, to request for it. Desire is different than, than want because want will often go uncommunicated. Desire is so strong and it has such a strong pull that it ends up being communicated by the person that has the desire. That's what we're talking about today, is where does desire and radical generosity intersect? And I believe it intersects when our love for Jesus overflows to our radical ability to give. It's our love for Jesus that determines that. In fact, um, money is interesting. Money is a great revealer, isn't it? Money is such a great revealer. I've heard it said that um, if you want to look at the condition of your spiritual life, um, don't necessarily look in your Bible because um, anybody can write notes and mark up Bibles. Um, someone once said to look at the condition of your spiritual life, look at your calendar and look at your checkbook. People don't keep checkbooks anymore, do they? I mean, really, look at Quicken, I don't know. Whatever you do to keep your finances organized, if you were to look in your calendar and look at where you spend your time, and if you were to take a peek behind whatever, wherever you keep your finances, um, like that is the clearest indicator of your own spiritual life. Wow, that's convicting, isn't it? I mean, it is. Where we spend our time and where we spend our money is the great revealer of where our heart is. In fact, Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, 19 to 20, take a look at this. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven. Where neither moth nor rust and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he ends by saying this, and many of you know this verse. But it's saying it's a lot easier than practicing it. Am I right? Like saying this verse is a lot easier than practicing it. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Money and our spiritual lives are absolutely connected. They cannot be separated. I was talking to a, uh, a good friend of mine, and uh, he was a financial advisor. And he, he told me, he said, you know, it's just amazing 
how um, money just is, reveals so much about people. And so in our conversation, we kind of came up with two things. And don't worry, I'm not plagiarizing this. This is something that we talked about, and I asked him if I could share it. And he said, yeah, but don't use my name. He said, um, first of all, money reveals who people really are. And, and then he went on to say, and he works with some wealthy people. He said, big money makes people more of who they already are. Isn't that true? Money, like how you and I spend money, reveals who we are. Big money, and some of you are like, I've never had big money, so I don't know about this. But anyway, big money, I haven't either. Um, Big money really, really makes you and I more of who we really are. And and he said somebody, he, he went on to tell me, you know, somebody who spends all their money when they have a little bit of money, guess what they do when they have big money? They spend it. People who save and invest the money that they have when they don't have much money, guess what they do when they have big money? They save it and they invest it. People who cheat other people when they have little money, guess what they do when they have big money? They cheat other people in big ways. We saw that during the financial crisis, didn't we? Bernie Madoff and some of the others. But people who are generous with little money, guess what they do when they have big money? give it away. Big money makes people more of who they really are. Matthew 6, 19 and 20 essentially is saying this, um, where we spend our money reveals our deepest desire. Where we spend our money reveals our deepest desire. Money is the great revealer. It shows us who we are. And, and most people pursue riches. Most people pursue wealth. That's kind of the common uh, theme in America, especially, but all over the world. Most people's desire is to obtain as much as they can. And the Bible's clear on that. Um, take, take a look at a couple different verses, but I want you to take a look in particular at a verse in 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, where Paul is speaking to his protege about this And he says this in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Timothy 6, but those who desire to be rich will fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people, plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then he says this in verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And so Paul is explaining to Timothy that when we um, seek in our lives, when we make the centerpiece of our lives to desire to become wealthy, that it will, will lead to destruction. He doesn't say that money's evil. I want to point that out. He says the love of money. And it's interesting because that word love um, is a completely different word than is used all through the Old Testament. It's a word that's specific to material wealth. And this insatiable quest for material wealth. And so Paul says that to, to Timothy, but 
Solomon, um, God used Solomon to convey the same concept, that if we strive after wealth for the sake of wealth, that we will end up in ruin. Take a look at what Proverbs 28, 20, and 22, 20 through 22 says. A faithful man will abound with, say that word again, blessing. We've said that twice over the last two weeks. But whoever hastens to be rich will not go, what's that last word there? Unpunished unpunished. And then he says to show partiality is um, not good, but for a piece of bread, a man will do wrong. He's saying essentially for in a moment, just for something small, we'll kind of sell our soul. Um, And then he says in verse 22, a stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. You see, God's plan is to take care of you when you do the things that he's asked you to do. Now, does that mean that people thread the needle and end up becoming wealthy and are taken care of despite the fact that they disobey God? Absolutely. That's how sin has confused the world. That's how this whole thing has come undone, if you will. But God's best, God's desire is for us to pursue him not wealth. Proverbs eleven twenty four says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another one withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Have you ever been there? Have you ever wanted something, even if you're a, a, a student or a kid, like you've wanted something so much, like a Christmas present. I, I remember as a kid, I wanted a blue mongoose bike, BMX bike, when I was, um, it, it was 1982, I can't remember. I was nine years old. There we go. I wanted a blue BMX mongoose bike for Christmas, and I got it. And you know what? When I got it, you know what I wanted? Something else. I wanted the new one that came out the next year. And that's how humans work, unfortunately. We always want that extra thing. And this doesn't have to do with money. Money and material possessions go hand in hand. It is both and. It's not one or the other. To to strive after material possessions is the same thing as striving after wealth. And so the point of those verses, all those, 1 Timothy and Proverbs, both of those Proverbs is this. um, A desire for God brings, say it with me again, blessing. And we tied blessing to need last week. Not to winning the lottery or having that golden parachute, that uncle that died 150 years ago that left you some money somehow. By the way, that won't happen if you think that's going to happen. I just want to let you know that. I'm 42, and I I don't know a whole lot, but that won't happen. So anyway, um, some of you guys are young. I just want to let you know that. Okay. A desire for God brings blessing. A desire for money, for money's sake, brings disaster. A desire for money, for money's sake, brings disaster. I I wonder what would have happened... um, if Mother Teresa had desired wealth. Some of you know who Mother Teresa is, some of you don't. She died in 1997 at 87 years old, and she spent her life helping children and people who were poor and people who were literally starving for food and people who were um, ridden with all kinds of disease in Calcutta. She gave her life away and committed her life to helping people because of her love for God, what would have happened if Teresa of Calcutta decided 
early in her life that she was going to pursue wealth. There would be thousands, thousands of Roman Catholic women who never served because not only did she help the poor and help the hungry and help the homeless and help those who were sick, but she trained over her lifetime thousands of other sisters to do the same thing. But what if she had made the decision to pursue wealth instead of God? By the way, you know where Mother Teresa was born? Macedonia. Isn't that interesting? The same place that we're talking about right here. She was born in 1910 in Macedonia. She pursued generosity, radical generosity, and she gave her life away for that purpose. You know, in the winter of 2008, there we were praying and just asking God for clarity um, on what we should do. And I remember the chairman of Low Country Stewardship Team, a guy named Wes Pipkin, after we were done praying, he stood up and he goes, well, I, I want to bring it to a vote right now. It's time right now. <laughs> and Jeff and I were like, what? Like, we thought this was going to take months to, like, you know, like, talk through this and, you know, all that. And he said, I, I just believe God's asking us to vote, and I'm not going to pressure anybody. But if you're here today and you're, you know, part of the elder board, just, let's just vote right now, all in favor of doing this. And God gave us our first semi-permanent building down there. And um, many, many people came to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior because of 21 Office Park Road. And 21 Office Park Road paved the way for us to be here today. And um, as much as I learned um, in my own life, my own financial life about faith, I witnessed that day seven men of God who were so incredibly faithful, who weighed all the factors, who absolutely went through all the due diligence of looking at the wisdom of this decision. But in the moment, not knowing if God was going to take care of us or not, they made a decision to pursue God. And we all are here today in part because of that decision that was made in the winter of 2008 with all of us kneeling on an old dirty floor that really never got cleaned up over those years at 21 Office Park Road. And it not only showed me something about faith, for me, I saw a bunch of men who truly had Jesus at the center of their lives. And they led our church that way. And you and I, um, we get to taste the fruit of that group of people and their decision to have Jesus at the center of our life. And you see, this whole message today really shows us this. An aversion to radical generosity means that Jesus is not really our main priority. But a passion for radical generosity means that Jesus clearly is the center of our life. Listen, I know that statement's harsh. I know that some of you are like, I, I, can't, I just can't get my head and my heart around that. But the Bible continually links the two together. This is not a message of guilt. It's not a message of judgment. It's really a message of introspection with you and God. Where are you? Is Jesus really the center of your life? Is he really the center of your life? If he is, like Cynthia and I had to do many years ago, we had to make the decision to give, even in a time where we didn't, because we knew that our desire for him would lead us to have that desire for generosity. We saw it in church. We saw it in our lives. And I'm telling you, if you're here today, 
and your financial life is in shambles, and you're a Christ follower, maybe one of the reasons that it's that way is because right now you're just going through a period of time that like, you can say Jesus is the center of your life, but is he really the center of your life? Would you pray with me today? Father God, thank you for our time today. God, thank you so much for um, the fact that you promise us in Malachi that you will meet every need that we have, that blessing is tied to need. It's not tied to, to wealth necessarily. And God, I pray that you would be with those who are here in this room today, and they walked in, and God, they are tired, and they feel helpless financially. They are worn out. God, I pray that you would be the God of comfort right now. God, I pray that you would help them. Um, maybe they've done all the right things, and yet still um, the future looks bleak. God, I pray that you would help them to stand tall in their faith. God, that they would just be so firmly planted and rooted in you and anchored in you that they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will take care of them. You will bring financial blessing to them because they are being faithful. And God, I pray for those who are here today. And um, God, there's more work to be done. God, there's a greater place that you're going to call them to. And maybe it, maybe it involves financial peace, but God, maybe it involves getting their desires reprioritized. God, I thank you that you're a God of grace and that you allow us to come to you and say, God, Daddy, um, my priorities have been out of place for a long time. And I've been pursuing other things other than you, and um, that's why I'm not giving. You're not the center anymore, Jesus. God, I pray for those who are in here today who may just need an adjustment on that. And God, I pray that you would give them the confidence and the courage. And God, that you would encourage them even right now to make the decision um, to make sure and ensure and put things into place to make sure it doesn't happen again, that you become the center of their life again. And God, that their generosity would overflow from that. God, that's the natural, joyful way to do it. And God, I pray that there'd be many people here today who seek you first. Your word says at the end of that chapter we looked at in Matthew 6, 33, but if we seek your kingdom first and your righteousness, then all these things will be added unto me. And God, I pray for a group of people who trust you with the then. A group of people who say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to put Jesus back in the center of my life. In fact, if you're here today, um, rather than raising your hand or standing, um, just in the quietness of this room while Cynthia plays, if you are just kind of admitting and acknowledging that, man, um, you know, it may not be played out in my financial life, it may be in other areas, but you just really need to get Jesus back to the center of your life. Um, I'm just going to have you in the quietness of this room with every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm just going to ask you to look up at me and I want to pray for you. I won't call you out, I promise. Okay, I've got quite a few people. Just look up at me. If you say, I've I got to get this right. I need some help with this. Just look right up at me. Awesome. Anyone else this morning? Awesome. Anyone else this morning? Awesome. God, I just pray for those who are acknowledging they just need help getting back to you being the center of their lives. God, I pray in the strong name of Jesus that you would lead them to that point. God, that you would lead and guide, um, that you would comfort, that you would convict, that you would challenge, and that you would encourage them 
And God, I pray that even tomorrow morning that they get up and even this afternoon as they go home, that they would seek you out and make you the centerpiece of their lives. And God, as we collectively as a church sing this, I pray that we would have you as our top priority in our life. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.